0: temple university is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the u.s through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty temple students are prepared to soar in their careers schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit
1: the following podcast delves into the world of horror cinema it's not for the faint-hearted you have been warned welcome to shoot shitless here's johnny there will be blood who's in the box uh, what's in the box i said don't you blame the movies movies don't create psychos movies make psychos Poor it's
2: showtime Hello, and welcome to another episode of Scared Shitless with me, Gordon Hayden. In this podcast, we're doing another deep dive. The film in question this week is Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining, a film Kubrick encoded with many meanings and easter eggs now over the years there have been many crazy theories about some of the messages kubrick wove into the tapestry of the film but one film critic that time and time again keeps unlocking the work of kubrick with his highly informative and well-researched videos and articles is rob agar from of learning rob's analysis of the shining for me is one of the best you'll come across especially one theory That will leave your blood run cold. I've been a fan of Rob's work for some time, so it was a real treat to have him on the podcast. I'll be back at the end for a post mortem, but here now is Rob Ager with his dark theory on The Shining. Rob, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I've been really looking forward to talking to you. I've been following your work for some time. I think your YouTube videos are a real must-see for film fans. The analysis that you do in terms of the real deep dive into Stanley Kubrick's work is superb. So it's great to have you on the podcast this week for a look at some of the hidden meanings within The Shining. So I wanted to talk to you about when you first got hooked in to Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. And when did you realize that there is a lot of layers to this film that
1: needed to be explored? Okay, well, I had the the strange experience of seeing The Shining for the first time when I was about seven or eight years old. (laughs) Uh, I mean, that was a time when um, VHS uh, home videos were sort of new on the market, you know, around about 1980-ish, and you could actually go to a video store and rent a movie, bring it home and watch it instead of having to wait for it to be on TV. And so there was a strange thing that happened with all that, is that a lot of parents at the time they weren't used to censoring their kids from horror movies. You know, that was done by the TV itself because movies were only on late at night, uh, horror movies only on late at night when kids had already gone to bed. And so parents were just letting their kids see these crazy horror films. I saw The Shining when I was seven or eight. I think I saw Alien on the same day. And I saw um, stuff like The Exorcist about two years later. I wasn't even 12 years old when I first saw The Exorcist. Um, And this wasn't just my family, this was across the board, kids were being horrified by all these horror films, you know, and the parents didn't know to shield them from it the way they do today. Um, And so, you know, at that early age, you know, those movies had a massive uh, sort of impact on they scared the hell out of me, some of them gave me nightmares. But at the same time, they were very psychologically powerful and I I related to and understood them on the basic plot level anyway. And The Shining was one of them, of course, and became one of our family favorite movies. And so I saw that film again and again as a kid and through my teens. And I never, ever thought that there was anything more going on than the plot, the ghost plot, the possession plot. That's all I thought was there. And um, uh, even in my 20s, uh, seeing the film several times, uh, I'd started making uh, short films myself. I was getting into writing and directing and editing. I think I made my first short film when I was uh, 27 years old, but it was a 35-minute film, so it was a fairly big project. And even at that point, I had no idea that um, The Shining or any of Kubrick's films could actually be studied and you know hidden things found in them it was just a concept I wasn't aware of at all uh, the closest I'd come to that before was Hitchcock uh, with Psycho my dad had pointed out some fascinating things in that film little subliminal tricks that Hitchcock had done um, and so I just perceived Hitchcock as being unique in that respect and I didn't think that Kubrick was operating on that level too and so As I got into uh, the writing and producing, directing editing of my own short films, I started studying my favorite classics. You know, what is it that makes these directors produce these fantastic, awesome movies that cut way above the competition? And of course, The Shining was one of those movies that I decided to study. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna pick some um, of my favorite scenes in The Shining, Psycho, Alien and so on. I'm gonna study them shot by shot every camera angle, study the set designs, all that kind of stuff, in order to improve my own skills as a writer and director. Um, I was not looking for hidden meanings in these films. Mm -hmm. But in the process of doing that, I was quite shocked uh, to find that some of my favourite films actually had a hell of a lot more going on once she started to break down the scenes uh, in the details. And the first two movies that really hit me uh, on that level was alien was the first one and then the shining and then with alien it was the birth trauma themes i don't know if you're aware of this oh. um that, that movie's got this sort of paradigm in it where um there's we there's a, psych, a psychological um theory that's been around since around the 1920s that we all carry with us a, a subconscious um trauma from when we were born the moment of being born you're taken out of the the, the, the warmth and comfort of the womb into this terrifying open loud bright world and the movie alien uh seems to play on that i won't go into that in a lot of detail here mm-hmm. uh, but that was the first one and then the shining i was watching the, that movie and the first theme that hit me was the native uh, american genocide theme i was like oh my god kubrick's sort of put a hidden theme in there that's hardly ever mentioned in dialogue and it's He's saying something about the, um, you know, the genocide of Native Americans. So that was the first thing, uh, and I was also noticing uh, the the huge sets, the sizes of the sets, making even the adult characters look small and um, vulnerable. You know, the the Colorado Lounge, the Gold Room, these big yes. imposing sets, um, and the the use of audio with a lot of um, uh, sort of echo effects and music that sort of plays out like it's um, echoing in a huge cavernous maze and that type of thing. Uh, so that was, I was, you know, in a nutshell, that was the first thing that really sort of opened me up to The Shining. And what were some of the Easter eggs that you noticed, Robert?
2: You thought, hang on here, I'm starting to see some subtext here, breadcrumbs that Kubrick sprinkles into the film that. Makes you kind of go. Hmm, it's kind of unusual now that I'm seeing a lot of these, say, bear motifs, and the use of mirrors and and little things like that. Can you talk to me about when those started becoming prominent to you?
1: Yeah, i try to think what the very first things that I began to notice. Uh, well, I mean, there was this, the set decor in The Shining was one of them with the various Native American um, designs that were all over the place in this hotel set, um, and. I think uh, the chef character Halloran where that, that now very famous moment where the camera sort of slowly zooms in on him as, as he's talking to Wendy and you can see the, the uh, there's a tin of calumet uh, that's yes. behind his head and there's a blatant Native American um, head in profile in the same profile position as his. And I was like, What? You know, so that was a, a real Easter egg that made me think, I ain't gone, I ain't gone, gone. Um, gone. And then there was the, you know, the little bits of dialogue about um, uh, the hotel being built on an Indian burial ground. Um, and then there was the tribal elements in the music and uh, the the opening sequence with the mountains, with the, the scary music and the helicopter shots. But you have these sort of echoed... Um, voices in the music that sound like chanting native americans i'm like whoa you know so it was those kinds of things that i started noticing i was thinking how many how many of these things are there in this film you know and that was just relating to one theme Um, and then from that you start noticing other things and then other themes pop up
2: you have some great Theories, Rob, you really do like some of your work on your YouTube channel, Collative Learning. I really encourage people to go and check them out. But there was one video that really stayed with me for days afterwards. And it's entitled Danny's Ordeal and the Bear Costume Man. And this theory will make people see the shining in a whole new light. It makes it the whole experience a lot darker. Can you explain a little bit more to me about this theory that you have that Danny suffered
1: terribly at the hands of his father? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, that video at the moment has got the highest view count of any video that I've got on YouTube um, and obviously the, the, the controversial aspects of it. Um, well, basically the theory is that uh, young Danny in the film was uh, sexually abused by his father, Jack Torrance, and that a lot of the horror hallucinations in the story are basically manifestations of Danny's terror. Um, Now, I was sort of primed um, by my own life experiences. Not not that I was sexually abused myself, but I had other life experiences that primed me to sort of notice that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd worked in mental health and... um, homeless hostels, I'd worked with abused children, um, and I'd worked with um, pedophiles in probation hostels. So uh, in reading all the case files and interacting with all these people, I became a lot more familiar than the average person in the street about uh, the subject of sexual abuse, how it affects people, um, and so on. And so I guess that primed me a little bit to kind of uh, pick up on this. But um, yeah, I I think the first thing that that I saw in the film that really made me go hang on was uh it was the bear costumed man moment late in the film where uh, the mother character Wendy runs up the stairs and she just looks into this room and she sees this guy in a bear costume who's got a flap on his behind which is open and uh he leans back and he's, he's been doing fellatio on this other party guest and uh It's such a weird moment in the film. You know, it was always a scary moment because there was no plot explanation related to it at all. Uh, There was some backstory in uh, Stephen King's novel, uh, but it was different. Uh, Kubrick removed all of the backstory from the novel. And in the novel, it was a guy in a dog costume and Kubrick changed it to a guy in a bear costume. So I was looking at that, I was thinking, what the hell is this about? And then when I was studying other scenes in the film, Uh, I I saw the scene of Danny brushing his teeth where uh, where he's leaning forward and uh, over the bathtub and you can see him through the doorway. And I was like, my God, that framing of that shot is so similar to the shot of the guy in the bear costume. Is that, is that intended? What's going on there? And that sort of gave me the idea that maybe there was a sexual abuse theme. Um, And then I was noticing things like uh, there was a scene where Danny goes in to get his fire engine from um, his parents' apartment in the hotel. And his father, Jack, is sat up on the bed looking very haggard and unshaven. And Danny looks terrified of his dad in that scene. Uh, And his dad sort of invites him over and Danny hesitantly walks over to his dad and the music is really sad and ominous throughout that scene. And, you know, Jack hugs him and Danny asks, would you ever hurt me and my mother? And uh, Jack is like, well, no, I'd never hurt you. Did your mother ever say that? And I love you. I love you more than anything else in the whole world. And the music builds up and up. And then the music just jolts as the scene ends. And I thought, what the hell was this long scene with this sad music all about? And I started to think there is some kind of abuse going on there. And there was already the basic plot point um, of Jack injuring his son, um, you know, dislocating his arm. That's there in the dialogue of the film. So there was clearly a, um, a verbal references to violent abuse of Danny in the film. I thought, well, what if there is a sexual abuse aspect to it as well? And so I can't remember exactly what things I noticed next, but I started picking up on other little bits of interest and information. But one of the most consistent things was that there were lots of uh, bear props throughout the movie. You had the guy in the bear costume in the fellatio scene, that weird scene that isn't explained. And then you have a scene of uh, young Danny in the US release version of the film. This scene was cut from the the European one for many years, but it's been restored now um you have danny laying on the bed talking to the psychiatrist about his scary shining visions and his pillow is a bear pillow with a bear face that is on screen right next to danny's face and it's like hang on what the hell is going on with these bears you know and then i started noticing like in the, the colorado lounge set there was a a big bear rug on the floor uh in Danny's bedroom in the Overlook Hotel, there's a picture of two bears right above his bed and there was bears all over the place. I was like, oh my God, this seems to be there. Um, and then I received an email. Um, I can't remember who sent me this, but somebody sent me a link saying, look, there is a um, a plague magazine that Jack Torrance is reading when he sat in the lobby uh, when he brings his family uh, to the Overlook on the, the, the closing day. He's reading the magazine and he just chucks it onto the um, the seat as he talks to Ullman, who is the, the hotel manager. And you can't really notice it in the, the DVD version because the, 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 um, the resolution isn't strong enough. But in the HD version of the film, you can see clearly uh, that the magazine matches up with a Playgirl uh, issue from around the time the film was made. And somebody had hunted down that Playgirl magazine issue and had forwarded me me the link. And I was like, my God. So Kubrick has given a Playgirl magazine to Jack Nicholson and told him, read this in the scene. And the cover of the magazine includes uh, a description of an article asking, uh, what was it? Incest, why do parents sleep with their children? I was like oh no and then at that then it be it was absolutely clear at that point that yeah Kubrick has been putting these little easter eggs these little hints all over the place in the film uh, hinting at a sexual abuse theme so at that at that point I was I wouldn't say 100% convinced but I was I would say 80% there and then I started picking up on lots of other
2: stuff which is in the video that you've seen it's an incredible theory and the way you've laid it all out rob you can't but come away from it and go i can see exactly yes that it's all pointing toward this you've said the video um has been one of your most successful that you've put up again the, the it's titled danny's ordeal and the bear costume man what has been the reaction to this
1: theory well that um, particular video that's up at the moment, uh, I think that's uh, 1.3 million views at the moment. Um, that wasn't the first video that I, I did on this. Uh, I actually wrote um, a huge article on The Shining back in 2008 when I was first delving into all of this film analysis stuff. And there was a chapter uh, in that that original shining article that that was called Danny's ordeal in the bear costume when I think it was, or it was just called Danny's ordeal. And that, that article is still online. Um, But I had a video about it called Jack Torrance, the abusive father, which went really in depth, like a long one. Uh, but I felt that it needed updating into HD because that, that video was only using the, you know, the, the original DVD format, which didn't have very good resolution. And I had very poor microphone at the time and stuff like that, you know, so I wanted to update it. Uh, but then I noticed another YouTube channel, which I'm not going to I'm not going to name the channel, but there was a, a corporate funded YouTube channel that does uh, uh, film analysis stuff. It's, a lot of these channels have been popping up over the years mm-hmm. and they one of the writers there had basically copied um, my, uh, 2008 article and done a video on that and they got half a million views and I thought, cheeky buggers. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: So uh, I, 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 contacted them and I had it out with them by email and they took their, their video down in the end. And, um, I uploaded my own updated video, which is the video that you've referred to. So, uh, that videos, um, which you've referred to, I think I put up maybe two years ago, maybe three years but the theory actually goes back to when I first wrote about it in 2008. And again, looking at some
2: of the breadcrumbs that Kubrick lays out, there is one of the early scenes with Danny that looks very innocent. But again, if we delve into this one, it's where he is lying on his bed. We see the the bear sort of to the left hand top corner of the screen. It's like a pillow. Yeah. And... He's wearing his underpants and he's having a conversation with a doctor because he hasn't been feeling well. And this is where we hear about Tony, his mysterious friend, the man that lives in his mouth. Again, just the framing of that and just the manner in which Danny is lying there, Rob were there any sort of red flags again that make you think,
0: hmm,
1: oh, yeah, yeah. game <laughs> is making us go, there's more to this than meets the eye. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't got like all the dialogue of that scene completely memorized, but there's certain lines that stand out. Um, he says that Tony is a little boy that lives in my mouth, you know? um, which could be a reference to the the, the fellatio theme. Yeah. Um, I, but particularly the one that really stood out to me is when she asks him, does Tony ever ask you to do things? And he just sort of looks pensive for a moment and then he says, I don't want to talk about Tony anymore. So obviously, her question has gotten onto um, something he doesn't want to answer. Mm. And uh, it's like, oh my God. So, watching that scene, it was just, it reads so um, convincingly as how a dialogue between a therapist and a child would go if the therapist was trying to uncover sexual abuse and the kid was hiding it, it really does read like that. It's, 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 it's what, once I'd read it like that, it's like I cannot watch that scene now and not have that in mind. It it just reads so perfectly in that way. Um, but I mean, children who, who have been sexually abused, they tend to, uh, they, they have a habit of externalizing. I mean, not just with sexual abuse, but any traumas. Children tend to externalize their traumas onto some sort of imaginary friend. Um, but a lot of the time it's missed because children will invest those feelings and ideas and thoughts into a cuddly toy. Yes. Uh, they'll have a favorite cuddly toy that they carry around everywhere and they identify deeply with this cuddly toy. I mean, my daughter's seven years old and she still strongly identifies with her little mousy uh, cuddly toy. Um, And I, I mean, she'll say things, she doesn't do it so much anymore, but, you know, a couple of years ago, she used to say to me, oh, mousy wants to do this, mousy wants to do that, mousy feels like this, mousy thinks that. And what she meant was, I think this, I want to do this. And she expressed it through this mousy toy. So... Virtually all kids have this at some some point during early development. Um, And I guess you could say that that is their version of an imaginary friend. I mean, some kids will have a classic imaginary friend that doesn't involve an actual physical external toy that it's invested in. But the cuddly toy thing is the same thing. It serves the same purpose. And basically, that's kids' way of dissociating themselves from their own um fears anxieties worries and especially with traumas and you know it's sort of well known in the the, the world of you know psychology that uh kids who suffer sexual abuse um can end up ha- um having what you know what is commonly known as multiple personality disorder um what is it they call it dissociative identity disorder it, i think yes. that's the one yeah um And so, yeah, looking at The Shining with Danny, I was like, my God, this Tony character might well be an externalization where he is dealing with his own traumas and investing them into this external character. Uh, So that made sense as well. Could you also then draw parallels, Rob, to The Exorcist?
2: And I'm going off on a tangent here now, but in regard to Reagan. And again, it's all there that she's possessed by a demon. It's a very sexualized possession. And so much so that you would kind of go, hmm, could
1: there be any hints there at abuse? Absolutely. Uh yes. Um and I do have a video on that as well. Um which I can't remember the exact name of it, but it's on the same channel as the the uh the shining video. Um but it's all about uh the the possibility, I'm not totally certain on it, but the possibility that there is an intended theme in The Exorcist of Reagan, basically being a sexual abuse victim and that the story is played out uh, with the sort of cover of, uh, you know, a a spiritual demonic possession. Uh, But my God, her her behavior in that film is so sexualized. It's got masturbation, it's got self-harm. And a lot of the crazy behavior that she engages in in that film it's the kind of thing you see from uh, kids who've been severely sexually abused. They go crazy. They become they become over-sexualized because, you know, they've been introduced to sexuality at a much earlier age and they don't know how to deal with it. Um, they can become very prescurious. Uh, they can become very vulgar, very violent. And all of that sort of overlaps with Reagan and the exorcist. But um, – there's something that really goes against that idea in The Exorcist is that the novel by uh, William Peter Blatty does involve all of the sexual stuff that's in the movie but William Peter Blatty was clearly religious and when you read his novel it's the central point of the novel basically seems to be that God does exist, the afterlife does exist specifically because evil exists. We can show that evil exists Um, and he'd done a lot of research into spiritual possession. And I think William Peter Blatty really, really believed, probably still believes, um, actually is he he still alive now? No, I think he passed away maybe about, I'm going to say maybe a year and a half, maybe two years ago. I I think, I think right till the end. I mean, looking at the interview, every interview I've seen over the years for him, the exorcist was a religious story and the sexual stuff was incidental. But what really fascinated me about that was that he based a lot of the story of the exorcist on um, historical recordings of so-called spiritual possession, which often involved sexual uh, vulgarity, uh, sexual deviations and stuff. And I think what happened there was that a lot of those historical examples of so-called spiritual possession probably had involved people being severely sexually abused and that they'd developed this dissociative personality disorder to a severe level. And then everybody else, not understanding what the, the 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 sexual abuse origins were, probably were like, oh, my God, we've got a possessed person here. And then you end up with all these historical records to that effect. So I think William Peter Blatty explored all of that stuff and put it all into his novel to make it... Um, uh, convincing and accurate, you know, according to the historical records. But inadvertently, he put in the the evidence uh, that a lot of these cases were actually just severe sexual abuse cases. And I think that crossed over into the movie as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if um, William Friedkin, the director, realized that that was the case. But there is a split between Friedkin and Blatty. Friedkin is far less religious than Blatty is and he removed a lot of the religious um speeches that were that were in the novel that the novel gets a little bit sort of cheesy towards the end and say it 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 overdoes the religious sermon aspect of it and um was wise enough to remove a lot of that stuff and leave a lot of it open to interpretation um but I do know that um, an interesting one was that uh, I think one of the screenwriters who worked with um, Tarantino on Pulp Fiction, I forgot his name. Was it Roger Avery? I know he was. That's one. him. Yeah. Yeah. Roger Avery. Um, he had written the, the uh, I think it was the gold story aspect of um, Pulp Fiction, um, the quest for the gold watch. Yes. You remember that classic. Oh, brilliant. And, and he'd encoded all kinds of hidden stuff. It's actually subliminally about the, the Vietnam war experience. Um, but, you know, that again, that's another video to go into. Mm-hmm. But Roger Avery had watched uh, my video on The Exorcist with the sexual abuse theory. And he was, uh, I think he was friends with Friedkin on Twitter. And he shared the video. And Friedkin watched the video that I'd done on it. And you know what Friedkin's like? If he doesn't like something, if he severely disagrees with something, he comes out and says it. Yes. And he will rip into people who he thinks are wrong. Well, Friedkin just tweeted, fascinating, mm-hmm. you know. He, he, didn't, he, he didn't disagree. He, he, he didn't agree or disagree. He just said it was fascinating. But in the video, I didn't say that can had done it deliberately. I just said it was a possibility um, and that it might have just been a, a crossover from the original historical data.
2: I think you've educated William Freakin about the, this particular subtext, that he may have not even been aware that was there with bubbling away. <laughs> like That's incredible to get someone like Roger Avery and then William Freakin to, to watch your work. To jump back to The Shining now, Rob, in terms of this theory in regard to Danny's sexual abuse, has there been anyone prominent affiliated to the film or just within the film industry that has seen this video and reached out?
1: Not regarding this specific theory. But I have had people who've been involved in the the production who I have spoken to. Uh, there's two that I can remember uh, offhand. There was a lady called Joan Honor Smith, and she was a uh, an artist, and she basically airbrushed Jack Nicholson's photo into the uh, you know the famous ballroom photo at the end of the film. Yes it took i tracked her down because i was trying to figure out things about that photo because i've noticed a lot of historical things and some possibly uh, famous historical figures uh, political and banking figures um they seem to be in that picture and so i was trying to track down where did the original photo come from because i know kubrick had said in interviews that um the, the original ballroom photo it was a real photo from back in the day but he didn't specify when it was from mm-hmm. uh, they weren't extras and the Jack Nicholson's photo was taken and put into that 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 picture. So Joan Honor Smith was given the task of doing that. So I tracked her down, and she's like very old now, in in, in her eighties. And we had a long conversation on the phone, and she told me amazing stuff uh, about the the production of The Shining because. Kubrick allowed her to just come on set and just wander around the sets and look at everything. And he even took her on a personal tour himself of the Gold Room and uh, the Colorado Lounge. And she revealed things like um, when the Gold Room design, when when that set was first designed, it was all done in silver. It was the silver room. Kubrick had all the people uh, on the set, make the silver room. And then he took a look at it and said, yeah, that's great can you change it to gold? <laughs> <laughs> they all had to redo. And she said that the, the, the people who were working were furious that they had to redo it. And, um, but that tied in with like, I, I had a the, the theory about um, the his, the hist, history of the gold standard in the U S monetary system as being part of the film's hidden themes. And, you know, silver and gold were the currencies that were, uh, that were prominent that, that were, uh, Uh, early and you know that's going into a whole other subject but uh, but yeah so you had the silver and gold aspect there but she told me tons of other things that she'd seen on set about how Kubrick behaved towards different cast members um stuff about the 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 tennis ball being thrown around what uh, whose idea it was and all this kind of stuff um and also who else was there oh yeah I didn't talk to him directly but somebody else um Spoke to the actor who plays Lloyd the barman. Oh, What's right it there? There?
2: Oh, is it? Oh, it's Barry. Oh, let me see it. Uh, no, oh, no, it's like Barry Joe knows. Turkle.
1: He played Turkle, Lloyd. Yeah, Joe Turkle. Yeah, that's there we it. go. Joe Turkle, who was also in Blade Runner. Yeah, as the as the the brilliant Tyrell character in Blade Runner. Yeah, Joe Turkel. Um, somebody um, who was a fan of the videos. I'd spoken to Joe Terkel in person. He, he was doing some sort of movie fan conference or something. He was there and he loves chatting about movies and stuff. And um, Somebody emailed me and said, I had a really close chat with Joe Terkel and I asked him if he'd seen your article on The Shining uh, or or it might have been on 2001. Yeah, it was on 2001 A Space Odyssey and uh, they sp- spoke to uh, Joe Terkel and Joe Terkel had revealed to them that when he was on the set of The Shining, uh, he had been chatting with Kubrick and had asked him, what the hell is 2001 A Space Odyssey all about? And apparently Kubrick gave him a a short spiel about um, visual encoding in the film and stuff like that. And Joe Terkel told this guy who then emailed me that he had read my study of 2001 and said it very much matched up with what he'd been told by Kubrick himself. I don't think Kubrick went into major detail, but I think Kubrick basically admitted to him that, you know, there's a hell of a lot more under the surface of that film if you study it. And that Joe Tackle then saw my article in 2001 and was like, okay, yeah, that looks like it, it's, might be along the lines of what Kubrick was intending. Um, but I can't remember whether Joe tackle said anything about hidden things in The Shining or not. Um, Yeah, so those are the two examples Joe Terkel and Joan Honor Smith. Can't remember if there's been anyone else involved in the production. It's very hard to get hold of some of these people because the film is now old enough that a lot of these people are now dead, or it's been so long ago that they can barely remember.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you What do you do when you win?
2: Recently, Rob, we had Doctor Sleep released in cinemas and I came away from it pretty cold, if I'm being honest with you. I just felt that with the greatest respect to um, the filmmaking team behind it, I just didn't think, it was kind of caught between two stools essentially. It didn't know whether it wanted to be a sequel to Kubrick's Shining or Stephen King's novel. And so it was stuck between a rock and a hard place and I wish it had made up its mind what it wanted to be. And I think Mike Flanagan, the director, was just trying to keep both sides happy. And I came away from it and went, oh, I didn't think it was great. And it didn't have a lot, an awful lot of depth to it. I didn't think you and McGregor either was a great Danny. What was your, just as a matter of interest, what did you think of Dr. Sleep, bearing in mind that you've studied The Shining so intently, coming away from Dr. Sleep? What was that like?
1: Well, I mean, I... I went to see Dr. Sleep uh, just with the worst expectations. Not as in I, I decided that the film was going to be terrible. I just decided that, you know, I'm probably going to see a film that might be decent on its own, but it's very, very unlikely uh, that it's, this film is going to match up in, in, in with, the, you know, the, the hidden themes that Kubrick had put in his version of The Shining. And yeah, I totally agree with you. It was stuck between trying to be faithful to the novel and trying to be faithful to Kubrick's film and f- failing because of it, really. Well, ironically, I actually quite liked the middle hour of the film when the story veered away from the Overlook Hotel and all that kind of stuff. And it got on with its own story about these what shining energy vampires, whatever you want to call them. There's a whole bunch of new characters that were unrelated to the original film. I thought the middle hour was actually quite enjoyable. I was like, okay, forget the shining. Uh, Just let's just enjoy this as a horror film in its own right. And and it was okay on that level um, for the middle hour. It was pretty decent on that level. But then when they got to the overlook near the end of the film, I was like, this is terrible. Uh, they've turned the Overlook into a traditional spooky house with cobwebs and, uh, you know, sort of low lighting. And Kubrick had always say, stated regarding his version of The Shining, he wanted to get away from those tropes and go for uh, horror elements that were, were not so cliched. And so they'd just gone right back to a cliched version of the Overlook. Um, and it was it Henry Thomas who played the Jack Nicholson role in Doctor Sleep at the end of the film? I love the work that he did on E.T. You know, he was the actor who played the boy in E.T. when he was a kid, and he was fantastic in that film. No disrespect to Henry Thomas, but having another actor try and replace Jack Nicholson uh, in a movie, you know, like with such an iconic performance as his in The Shining was doomed to failure. So I don't blame the actor for it, but that for me just sent the film right down the pan uh, towards the end.
2: You must have seen The Shining. God, knows. you must have lost count at this point, Rob, how many times you've but, seen The Shining. But it is one of those films that lends itself to being rewatched because of all these little nuances. And as we mentioned earlier on the breadcrumbs that Stanley Kubrick has uh, sprinkled into the film, taking a look at it now. Is
1: there
2: anything <coughs> new left to find, do you think?
1: Ah, there probably is. Uh, I mean, there's there's questions I don't have answered about it. I've still been trying to... um, Well, I've I've kind of been off doing other movies, you know, the last few years, and my my attention has veered away from The Shining quite a lot, but there's still things I want to find out about it. I would love to know where that original ballroom photo came from. Um, uh, Joan Anna Smith said that she thought it came from a BBC archives photo But because I'm not officially a journalist and because I'm not officially an academic, um, I'm not allowed to go in and look for it. Uh, It's a shame. But if any uh, journalists with access out there or any academics can can get to the BBC archives and hunt down that photo, that'd be awesome. Uh, So I'd love to find out about that one. Um, And then another aspect of the film, which I've got lots and lots of ideas about and I've written about this a bit before, I'm not totally certain on it, is uh, the timeline of the movie is an absolute mess. Um, it, I, I was trying to figure out for years, why is it that the times and the days and the dates make so little sense in the film? Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, with um, with Jack Nicholson, where, you know, he's, he's at the bar and he's talking about when he dislocated Danny's shoulder and he says it was three goddamn years ago. But that mismatches another piece of dialogue early in the film, which, which says that the, the abuse happened, what, five or six months ago? It's like, hang on, how many times has this abuse happened? You know, so there's stuff like that. Um, and I'd started to notice that things like, um, there are lots of clocks, uh, clock props in various sets. And often the times are all over the place. Uh, the, the wrong times are written in, in various places. Well, then there are continuation um, set continuity photos in the archives which have arrows pointing to clocks saying what time the clock should say. <laughs> yes. So it's not like they randomly had these clocks with random times and it's all, we forgot to change the clock. Kubrick was specifying when, what time should be on the clocks. And so it seemed to me that um, the, the film is very disjointed uh, in terms of, as you know, the sets, Uh, The set designs are all over the place. They don't make sense. That's now a very sort of famous interpretation of The Shining. Uh, The Kubrick deliberately made the sets impossible so that you don't never know where you really are in the hotel. Uh, And so even though the hotel is beautiful to look at, you feel lost in it. Um, And I now got the impression that he did that with the sense of time in the film as well, um, so that you, you don't quite know which day of the week you're supposed to be on, what time, on, on, on each given day things like that uh yeah so th- that was one big aspect of it um i'd like to know more about that rob just to go back to the sexual abuse element within the shining can you talk
2: to me about how jack nicholson's character jack th- torrance how he um reacts to um when he passes by certain mirrors uh, the reflection of himself he can't deal with it it's almost like he's disgusted with himself can you talk to me a little bit about that and also the significance of the sort of the decrepit zombie woman what she represents as well
1: yeah okay so uh One of the major things that you pointed out, I'd I'd actually forgotten about it while we were doing this interview. But uh, Jack Nicholson, at one point, uh, he gets accused by his wife of strangling Danny, uh, which, as far as I'm concerned, he did. (laughs) Um, But then you see him wander off towards the Gold Room where he has his first drink. Uh, But as he approaches the Gold Room, he walks down a hallway and there are a series of mirrors on the left wall. And as Jack slowly walks down that hall, with precise timing, each time he passes one of those mirrors, he makes some sort of angry uh, gesture of denial. I think the first one, he shakes his hand as if he's choking someone. He shakes his hand in the air. Um, And then after that, uh, uh, he sort of puts his arms up in the air and tries to cross – he crosses his arms out violently as if he's trying to wipe something out of his vision in front of him. Um, And what I took from that is basically he, he knows he's guilty. He knows he's done it and he's desperately trying to block it out, but he cannot escape his own reflection with these mirrors. Um, And then he wanders into the gold room. And, you know, if you've got a copy of the film, anyone out there, just go and put that scene on. It is so blatant. Once you you realize that the connection with the mirrors in that scene, but then he goes into the gold room, he sits down and he faces uh, Lloyd the barman, who is has got a mirror behind him. So he's, he's looking at the bar, he's, he's put his hands over his face uh, and he's trying to block out his reflection again, but there's a mirror in front of him. And how does he end up blocking out his reflection? Lloyd the barman and lots of booze covering uh, the, the mirror so that he can't actually see himself. So when he's talking there to Lloyd the barman, he's basically talking to himself, drunk, and so he gets drunk to block out the guilt. Um, And it can even be argued that his rampage of insanity in the final part of the film is basically that he's drunk. <laughs> yes. you know? uh, I mean, he's got the limp from being injured in the leg. But, you know, when people are drunk, they stagger around as well. Um, He acts drunk. You know, he's laughing and he's crazy and ranting and raving. He's not acting like, uh, you know, in The Exorcist when, you know... Uh, doing things that are sort of like supernatural and particularly demonic. He just, he's acting like a drunk. <laughs> yes. um, and there is the point early in the film where Ullman, the hotel manager, says to him, uh, We remove all of the booze from the premises uh, when we um, close down. Uh, but it's possible that Jack brought his own booze. or it's possible that he got some booze off Halloran. Maybe Halloran provided him with some booze. I don't know, but he definitely acts very drunk at the end of the film. Uh, So yeah, that was one thing. And the, the hag in room two, three, seven. Yeah. I've got a very specific interpretation of that scene, which it sounds really far out, but when you study the scene, it, it really does seem to match up for me. Um, Basically, the Jack Nicholson's character going into the room 237 um, and finding this woman in the bathtub who turns into this horrible hag. As far as I can tell, that is basically a dream sequence in which either Danny himself is recovering the trauma of being abused by his own father. Uh, I mentioned earlier there was the scene where Danny goes to try and get his fire engine and his dad is sat there on the bed and invites him over. And it's a very slow motion scene. He slowly goes towards his dad. And then there's sort of a fatherly love moment. And then the scene abruptly ends, at which point I think he became violent and probably sexually abusive towards Danny. But the Room 237 sequence mirrors it. The layout of the whole, the, the, the room mirrors the the, the Torrance apartment. And... Um, You know, you pass through the the parents' bedroom to get to the bathroom. And there's lots and lots of details in there that that, that match up those two sets conceptually. So basically, I think either Danny dreams and recovers the memory of what happened to him, and it's represented as uh, uh, this hag attacking him. Um, But the hag represents uh, Jack Torrance himself as the abusive father. Uh, And, you know, the nakedness and the kissing and stuff, it's it's almost like a sexual abuse scene in itself. You know, uh, uh, Jack Jack Nicholson playing, possibly playing the role of his own son in that dream sequence approaches this woman thinking he's going to experience uh, love uh, or intimacy. And then, bam, it turns into a horrible, terrifying, physically repulsive sexual experience and he backs out the room and as he's backing out he stumbles down some stairs and you see the hag from higher up from a child's point of view it sounds really far out but go and watch those two scenes any of you who are out there who are wondering what the hell i'm talking about watch the scene of danny approaching his dad when he tries to get the fire engine watch that and then watch the room 237 sequence with the old hag the parallels are unbelievable.
2: Yeah, the pictures were just going. I was going through them in my mind, just as you were explaining them all there, Rob. And absolutely. And and you're, what's also kind of interesting as well is. The aftermath of when when Jack Torrance leaves that room, like you would have expected that man to have been shaken up by the experience of uh, coming face to face with the hag. But when he returns to Shelley Duvall's character, Wendy, it's as if nothing happened. He says, like, there's no woman in the, the hotel at all. And you kind of go, hmm, maybe there was no woman because it was all in his head or he doesn't want to, to say anything and reveal what he was doing in that room. Have you got any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, what makes a lot more sense to me is he basically w- went away and slept off being drunk you know? <laughs> and then went back to the, the and said that he'd gone to the room. But I don't think he even bothered going to room 237 because he knew there was nothing in there anyway. He knew he, that he'd done uh, to Danny what he'd done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that dream sequence can be interpreted as uh, Danny recovering the trauma, but it could also be Jack himself having a nightmare, a guilty nightmare about what he did. Um Yeah, so in the dream, if that was the case, then Jack himself replaces Danny in the experience and becomes the sexual abuse victim. God,
2: that's fascinating, Rob. Like, the, the level of detail that you've managed to extract from The Shining, I just think it's absolute testament to your analysis of that
1: film. Well, I mean, can I, can I just interject on that and say, I am absolutely stunned by Kubrick's... Um, knowledge and ability uh, you know knowledge of the subject the psychology of abuse and uh, from the parent and child perspective and his ability to encode it so cleverly so that it just goes over your head for years um and i must have seen the shining 30 times before i even got into film analysis stuff and i had no idea any of this was there but once you start noticing it, it's like oh my god and uh, you know it, when you realise Kubrick has operated on that level, his work just becomes outstanding, you know.
2: Rob, before we let you go, where can people find more of your videos? Because not only can they obviously go to YouTube, but also your website where you've got even longer uh, form videos that people can uh, enjoy.
1: Yeah, okay. So yeah, obviously there's, uh, I've got a, uh, a couple of YouTube channels that do the film analysis. One is just called Rob Eger, Ager, A-G-E-R. Uh, that's my secondary channel. And uh, my main channel is Collative Learning. And that is tied to the website, which is colativelearning.com. Uh, there's tons and tons of stuff there. A lot of it I've, I've put behind a paywall because I, you know I work full time writing these uh, articles and making these videos it takes a hell of a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just wouldn't be able to do it for free um but yeah i mean there's a lot of free stuff on the website as well and the extensive article that i did on the shining which uh, i think is around 20 or 21 chapters long that's all available for free on the website so you can go and have a, a read through that because I, I think some people prefer reading uh, the article version than watching the videos uh, but if not if you just go to my youtube channels already mentioned and there's plenty of videos on the shining there as well uh, but i, I just sort to finish off here by saying that um I know because there's so much public interest in The Shining over the years, which has partially been brought about by my work on it, but other people have been doing videos on it as well and articles and stuff. Um, It's very easy for people to assume, uh, you know, based upon the the movie uh, Room 237, which about The Shining theories, which I was asked to take part in, but I I decided not to because uh, there was one or two people involved in that who I knew We're going to bring the whole project down in terms of its quality. So I kept away from it. Um, But sometimes there's a bit of a perception that there's a kind of underbelly of people out there who have a, a unhealthy obsession with the movie The Shining. And they're always trying to find new things in it and just projecting into it what they want to see. Well, my argument against that is basically, you know, over the last like 13 years, I've done tons of videos on tons of different movies. I've done just as many videos on Alien as I've done on The Shining, uh, just as many on um, Eyes Wide Shut as I've done on The Shining. So if somebody's got an unhealthy obsession with a particular thing, it um, it doesn't really apply if that person is out studying lots of other things in just as much detail, you know. So, yeah, I just wanted to point point that out because I know a lot of people have got that perception about this movie.
2: And you're so right, Robin. And as well, we're pointing out because, yeah, it's so true. Because you would watch Room 237 and you do come away from it and go, that person clearly seems like a bit of a crackpot there. There's no way you can have any correlation there. So, yeah, I think it's good to try and make that very clear. And actually, some of your eyes wide shut videos are like, there's a film you could go down the rabbit (laughs) hole on. Absolutely. Rob Ager, it's been a real pleasure um, talking to you. It really has. And we'll. Stay in touch because it'd be great to have you back on and to discuss Alien in particular and, and some of the theories there oh, because yeah. <laughs> they would be it'd be a, such an education. And once again, just let people know, collativelearning.com. Um, if you want to get more of Rob's work, it goes into great detail there too. Rob Ager, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the
1: podcast. Thanks very much, Gordon. Great to speak to you. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Bye-bye.
2: a great guy Rob Ager there looking forward to having Rob on the podcast again soon. Now just before I go I want to tell you about our next episode. I'm going to be joined by film professor Harvey O'Brien from University College Dublin to discuss the genesis of horror. Like Rob Ager Harvey is a fountain of knowledge. About two or three years ago Harvey and I did our own live show called The Science of Horror Movies where we just sort of broke down little tricks that filmmakers do to elicit fear. And we also did experiments in front of a live audience with... Irish celebrities that very graciously took part in the experiments just to see how our bodies react to fearful situations while watching um, horror movies you can see some of that video up on YouTube, it's called The Science of Horror Movies but Harvey's a great guy, so you're in for another real treat on our next episode where we're going to be looking at the origins of the horror genre and how it has evolved well that's it for this week, from me Gordon Hayden until next time